As Americans become increasingly pro-life, a handful of politicians and states are responding by becoming increasingly anti-life. New York and California are the unfortunate leaders in this move toward the extreme political and cultural fringe in denying and diminishing the full scope of the human right to life. And yet there are always reasons for hope. Adversity often forges the best advocates for a better future. And that's true when it comes to San Francisco, of all cities, where a powerful and resilient community of young people bravely witness to the human right to life. We've spoken with Teresa Bukovinak previously on Life, Liberty, and Law when she came to us from Detroit, where she was witnessing to life at the Democratic debates. Today, we welcome Teresa back to speak about her work as founder of Pro-Life San Francisco, her advocacy across the Golden State, and the present and future of Planned Parenthood's attacks on David Daleiden and the Center for Medical Progress. I'm Tom Shakley, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law. I am Tom Shakley, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Teresa Bukovinak. Welcome back to the program, Teresa. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here, Tom. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. And we're also joined by Noah Brandt from Americans United for Life. Thanks, Tom. Teresa, we've had you on before. You've talked about the experiences you've had at the Democratic debate in Detroit. You've been to other debates to witness to life. But today, we're here to speak about your work, particularly through Pro-Life San Francisco. So let's start there. What is Pro-Life San Francisco? Pro-Life San Francisco is a millennial-led grassroots activist organization operating in arguably the most pro-choice culture in America, possibly the world. Uh, we seek to educate our community on the topic of abortion, and that includes our elected officials uh, and other legislators. We seek to connect pregnant people with resources uh, to choose life. So we engage in sidewalk counseling. We do um, support efforts um, for the pregnancy centers locally, and we offer several resources through our website. And we are probably the most well-known for our nonviolent direct action and our resistance to the abortion industry here in our Bay Area community. So how did Pro-Life San Francisco come to be? Well, I founded the organization in 2016. Um, I was involved in the pro-life movement um, through secular pro-life up until that point, um, and I, I do remain a co-leader of that organization. Um, but my advocacy up until that point, up until 2016, had been mostly online and, um, and national conferences, but I hadn't really done anything to break into the community. Um, but with the rise of Donald Trump in 2016 and um, and the fact that he spent so much time uh, platforming off of the life issue and the fact that, as many of your listeners may know, I, I am a registered Democrat. I identify as a liberal. I, I'm a non-religious person. So in every other way, I align with the Democratic Party except on abortion. Um, so seeing someone so opposite me, someone like Donald Trump um, and someone who was so unpopular in my community... Uh, promoting the life cause uh, inspired me to to take a leader a more leadership role within the community. I, I was concerned that uh, someone like Donald Trump would never be able to reach my community in any kind of meaningful way, and in fact, that his advocacy for life would, um, by nature, um, make it more difficult um, for left leaning people to arrive at a pro life position. Um, so at the time, I, I thought, you know. We had no idea that Trump was going to win that election, but I just I saw the momentum going in that direction. And so I started um, trying to connect with other pro-life people in the San Francisco community, which up until that point, I ha had no um, connections. I didn't don't have a faith community. Uh, I didn't know any pro-life people in real life. Um, so I reached out to several different organizations asking um, for direction here and there. And I spent months um talking to people in the city who were pro-life, uh, but were very reluctant to take any kind of um, leadership role 
um, within like this new idea that I had, which was, you know, this millennial led organization that would represent, you know, people from across the political spectrum. And, you know, there was a lot of skepticism about doing something like that in San Francisco and anyone, you know, really uh, taking some kind of leadership with that. But with enough months of, um, of pursuing this and building relationships and, and, um, being introduced to so many new people, I was able to establish about 40 people um, to launch the organization in October of 2016, uh, just a few weeks before the presidential election. And then after the election of Donald Trump, the abortion issue became absolutely enormous. Um, it was a top talking point directly after the um, election. And so Pro-Life San Francisco immediately had a very important role um, to play in our community um, since that day. Can you paint the scene for us? What are you trying to meet in terms of the need in San Francisco? What are the strengths of the city and, and what are its weaknesses, especially when it comes to the human right to life? Well, the strengths that we have in San Francisco um, are many. Uh, first of all, this is like kind of what we consider the Atlanta of the Civil War on the abortion issue. All of the major battles really need to be fought here. This is where the abortion industry um, holds the majority of their power. This is where the the relationship between the abortion industry and the Democratic Party uh, really comes to a head. And we are also the home of the University of California, San Francisco, which is the late-term abortion training capital of the U.S. and therefore has major global influence. They are also the most politically motivated uh, medical institution on this issue worldwide. Uh, so there's so many reasons that San Francisco is an absolutely crucial place. Um, but what makes it a great place to work on this issue is that so many people, first of all, are pro-choice by default. They've really never had any kind of um, cultural opposition on this issue, at least not since you know the days prior to Roe v. Wade. Yet what we see in the statistics is that both Democrats and millennials are leaning significantly more on the life side than they have in, in a generation. Um, so we have a community that's very undereducated on this issue. They've just kind of accepted abortion as the status quo. And then we also have this, uh, the global influence of the tech industry and Silicon Valley, which has attracted uh, talent uh, from across the globe. So we have this international millennial-led um, community that is very um, leaning to the left. Um, and we see that in statistics as well. We're the most left-leaning generation in the history of our nation. Um, but they're very, very um, unsure about their feelings about abortion. Um, and we see that both statistically and I can attest to that anecdotally, um, that when I approach millennials about this issue. They're interested. They want to know. They don't. They know that they don't know enough about the issue to make really firm judgments. And so, when they see someone confidently taking this position and willing to listen to what they have to say, and then and still having um, some significant argumentation on the life side, they're intrigued. They want to know more. Um, the other side of that is. Um, is the boomers hold out here in San Francisco. Boomers here are extremely um, hostile to the pro-life message. I could tell them all day long about, I could lay common ground, uh, you know, for weeks and say, you know, I'm an atheist, I'm a Democrat, I, I'm a liberal, I, I'm a vegan, and none of that would matter once I say I'm pro-life. They are just like, get out of my face. Um, so there really is kind of a duality in um, the way the generations um, tend to perceive this type of work and this type of activism. Um, one thing that is also really super in our benefit here in San Francisco and the Bay Area is the fact that many major social justice movements have started here and won. And quite frankly, including the pro-choice effort that started as a grassroots effort, it didn't start as something political. It didn't, it didn't become a partisan issue until after years of grassroots efforts culminating to Roe v. Wade. And after Roe v. Wade is when um, the political platforms uh, began to address abortion. So this is a community that cares about grassroots activism and that cares about um, maybe fringe ideas or ideas that aren't super popular yet, but that are kind of cutting edge and are 
do fit into um, a, a more liberal ideology, which we believe the pro-life position does. It, it promotes the values of equality, nonviolence, and non-discrimination, which we also feel are incompatible uh, with liberal ideology. And we see currently in the Bay Area um, activist movements like the intactivist movement that you know is working against uh, male circumcision and the animal rights movement. And both of these movements are gaining major and significant ground, both culturally and legislatively, on a citywide and now statewide level. Um, the the right to rescue uh, just had a major victory in the animal rights movement in the city of Berkeley just a couple nights ago. So there's a lot of sympathies to these types of uh, grassroots um, efforts. And I, I believe that given the opportunity to portray this issue in that light, to liberals who are very unsure about their position on abortion um, and who are in a city that has the potential to change progressive policy across the globe, we are in a place of um, a major opportunity for the pro-life movement. I see actually very few drawbacks um, to being here because basically everything that we do, if we get any visibility on it, is a major win in a city like this. And not just for our city, but for this message across the nation and across the globe. We're going to have people that organize against us, uh, but the intensity with which they do that here is not nearly what I would expect it to be in a place that's like a swing state where they have to mobilize activists regularly um, for you know legislative purposes. But here, that just doesn't really exist. So it's kind of a wide open gate for us to just come in, have a cultural impact, develop this grassroots movement so that we can start to put pressure on the community, on legislators to stop being so extreme and to start representing the majority and to start to develop that majority narrative. Teresa, like you said, at least from the outside, it appears that San Francisco would be so sort of hostile to the pro-life cause, or at least that's the default position many people have, even if they haven't thought it through. Like you said, and I wonder when you were starting the organization and even today, how do you bring up the issue? How do you start talking to people when everyone's default position around you is so pro-abortion? I think of my wife, who here in the D.C. area works at a very sort of just culturally liberal place that has a very pro-abortion instinct. And she's, you know, it, it can be frightening for many people in their jobs or in their social life to even bring up that they're pro-life because they might be afraid of being stigmatized. Uh, or just otherwise sort of cast away. So how, in a place like San Francisco, do you just start talking to people about life? That's a great question. And I believe so strongly that that is the reason why abortion is flourishing in America today. It's because the majority has been stigmatized and shamed into silence. So even when you see that 60% of Democrats want to see abortion restricted to the first trimester and nobody standing up to our leadership saying anything that's why because the stigma and shame is so incredibly effective at silencing uh, people's thoughts on this um, for the most part you know I really just let people know that I'm pro-life like it, it's something that's d impossible for me to hide because it's like the first question people want to know about you what do you do for a living <laughs> or if they follow you on social media it's like oh you're the founder and executive director pro-life San Francisco um so I don't have to talk about it with anyone I just have to be the coolest person in the room at every <laughs> party and just be pro-life and that's pretty much my advocacy is just normalizing this, just making it a destigmatizing being pro-life, because that's what we have to do. The stigma of abortion, it, it pales in comparison to the stigma of not even just holding a pro-life position, but actually being a pro-life activist or, you know, God forbid, doing sidewalk counseling. So um, it, it's really about destigmatizing those behaviors. And, and admittedly, that would be very, very difficult if I didn't hold the other positions that I hold, if I was in San Francisco and I'm like MAGA and like, you know, Jesus and uh, anti-abortion, I think it would be way, way harder for me. And, and not that, you know, any of those things are definitively wrong. It's just that it presents a challenge because when we're asking people to change their behaviors or even change their perspective, the likelihood of them doing that is only going to 
decrease if you're showing any kind of significant difference in who you are compared to who they are. Right. And the more you're able to demonstrate similarities and lay common ground, then you might have the chance of actually potentially changing their perception over time. So that's the that's the strength in, you know, my role in the movement. And that's why, you know, this is just, I feel so compelled to do this work because I feel like in a lot of ways, I'm the only one that really can do it right now. But the goal is to inspire more people like me who do demonstrate sameness with the other side to be emboldened, to come forward, to get over the stigma and shame and break through the silence. And then once we're visible, once people can see that there are people like them who hold these more life-affirming positions, then they're going to be less likely to be as militantly pro-choice. And truly, that's like the beginning of the end of the abortion industry. And I think, you know, in particular, I'm wondering how pro-lifers find each other in San Francisco and California. You know, you mentioned uh, your work with secular pro-life before pro-life San Francisco. How does the community form? How can other folks out there find each other? So it's mostly about social media. Um, we're millennial-led, so we um, often forget to send out email blasts, and certainly <laughs> I don't think we've ever sent out mailers. But, you know, we want to continue to grow the organization uh, across generational lines. We think it is absolutely crucial that when we're organizing in a place like California or San Francisco, we want to be millennial-led. We want to be secular-led, if possible. Um, but we want the help of every individual in this community to reach every individual. Um, so, yeah, we mostly focused around, you know, our Facebook page, our Instagram, our Twitter, my personal accounts. Um, but, you know, you can. we also have a website, ProLifeSF.com. Sign up for our email list there. And that's primarily how we're we're educating. And when we go to speak to legislators, when we go to protest outside events, when we go do sit-ins, when we go do sidewalk counseling, we take pictures, we take videos, we put them online so that those things can inspire other activists across the country in these very blue areas uh, to rise up to do the kind of activism that's necessary to address uh, this culture of abortion where they hold their power. Teresa, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about uh, the idea of nonviolent direct action. You mentioned that as part of the strategy of Pro-Life San Francisco. I know there's a great history here, and I'm wondering if you can unpack that a bit for us. Yeah, um, so nonviolent direct action is uh, a type of activism that's been used in social justice movements uh, here in the United States um, and across the world, and in some cases it has even toppled dictators, um, like in the case of Otpor um, in uh, Eastern Europe in the early 2000s. Um, so we, uh, nonviolent direct action was used in the American Civil Rights Movement, um, and uh, Gandhi is very uh, famous for using nonviolent direct action tactics um, for liberation. And we also feel uh, nonviolence is a core element of our beliefs as um, anti-abortion um, activists, that we believe in a world of nonviolence. That's what that's our goal. And so it makes sense that our tactics would um, be nonviolent. But we also feel like there's a difference between just refusing to engage in violence and actively resisting and protecting the victims of that violence. And Actively protecting the victims of that violence requires direct action. We believe that it requires our direct involvement um, in sidewalk counseling, in taking from the abortion industry's bottom line of getting directly involved in the legislative process and developing um, creative activism to um, to bring to the surface the tensions on this issue that already exist in the community that aren't being addressed. And I think a lot of times, you know, people look at nonviolent um, direct actions, they'll see a, a particular action. I see this quite frequently in the pro-life movement and, and people will say, this is no good. This isn't helping anyone. People are just booing them. They're just pissing people off. They're just disrupting things. That's not helpful. Um, but that's really missing the entire point of nonviolent direct action. It is not always just to change the minds of the people around you. And as we know, changing hearts and minds is not enough anyways. 
We already have a majority in the Democratic Party who wants abortion limited to the first trimester. It doesn't matter if people's hearts and minds are changed if they're not willing to stand up and say anything and to stop this. So nonviolent direct action is about causing discord. It's about causing a disruption. It's about pissing people off. It's about getting booed. It's about being hated. It is the only way to bring to the surface the tensions that exist in the community on this issue. And so I, and I think, you know, in general, because pro-lifers are, we are so devoted to nonviolence and peacekeeping that we often shy away from these types of things because they are scary and you do risk arrest and you do risk people hating you and thinking that, you know, your tone is violent or that you're coming across too aggressive. But nonviolent direct action is an act of peace. It is an act of love. It is an act of nonviolence. And it is absolutely necessary if we are going to confront the industry of abortion in a nonviolent way. We can, we're fooling ourselves if we believe that we can just provide for pregnant people and that we do not have to do any direct action on this. We know from California policy that we are one of the safest and best places to have a baby in this country because of our um, democratic policies. And yet we have one of the highest abortion rates in the nation. This is an industry that has to be confronted and it must be through nonviolent direct action. Yeah, I think it's powerful, especially, you know, you cited Gandhi and you look at the witness of somebody like Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement broadly. And you think about the most resonant, iconic images from these movements. You think of, uh, of a Rosa Parks on the bus. You think of um, uh, on the opposite side, you know, uh, police dogs being um, sicked on people just there to witness to their rights. Uh, and that's an example of the value of the sort of action you're talking about, that drawing out of distinction, um, yes. saying that we're going to just just exist. We're just going to be in a way that causes this distinction to be drawn out um, because authentic peace can't be reached without an actual healing of the divisions, right? And this is, I think, as you kind of alluded to there, Teresa, sometimes we can think of, well, if we want to be peacekeepers, we have to sort of um, just live with things as they are. But you have to, you have to say... Uh, until the things that divide us are addressed, are recognized as divisions first, as mm -hmm. authentic things that are separating us from being able to be good neighbors to each other, good family members to each other, um, even uh, differences among states in our system, until those divisions are fully brought out, we can't really heal those divisions. We can paper over them. We can pretend they don't exist, but we can't have authentic peace. It's, it's important, Tom. It's like, uh, it reminds me of, I heard sort of this big therapist guy giving a, giving a speech, I saw it on social media or something a few weeks ago, and he was talking about that a big problem that couples have or that you can really have in any relationship is just saying, no, 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 it's fine, we agree, everything's fine. When you're, when you're having this fight, you don't agree, and it's not fine. And being able to say that and say, this is what we disagree on, let's talk about it. Like that, that is such an important step of a relationship, even if the relationship is between like 50% of the country and the other 50%, hundreds of millions right. of people. <laughs> it's, it's really important to do that because if you just keep saying everything's fine, we don't disagree, even like in the Democratic Party or in these political parties, then you're only making the problem worse and making it fester because you're not being honest. Tech companies took out a newspaper ad kind of promoting um, their concern with, uh, with what they characterize as reproductive justice, which really, of course, is just abortion. And you would say, right. well, why would, you know, major Fortune 500 or Fortune 100 or aspiring Fortune 100 companies all favor the delaying or the uh, cessation of families? It's because it's good for their bottom line. When you don't have families, when you don't have loved ones, it's a lot easier to put in that extra time at work. And that might be good for the company, but it's not good for the people. Yep, absolutely. I think that that is a... That's a problem that we've seen like since the 1960s. Warren Buffett's been funding um, UCSF since the 1960s. Those with wealth and power um, do favor uh, pervasive elective abortion in this country. And we have to ask ourselves, as the people of this nation, why that is. And we have to get real about the, those answers and we have to take responsible, uh, responsibility um, for protecting each other. Yeah, because from it's the of these corporations. Because it's like even if you believe that uh, abortion is a is a liberating act in some way, you still have to ask the question: Well, what is it liberating you to do? 
you know, what sort of life are you being, you know, quote unquote, liberated into? So on the southern end of the Golden State, of course, we have Los Angeles and the recent news that Planned Parenthood is now going to be operating in at least 50 Los Angeles schools. Um, they've told us, of course, they've said, don't worry, we're not going to perform abortions in these schools, <laughs> um, which I guess is reassuring. I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, they're, they're coming out and they're saying we're going to provide medical services to school children. Of course, we know what Planned Parenthood's power and ultimate uh, bottom line uh, is concerned with, which is abortion. That's, that's what makes them what they are. That's why they fired Dr. Leanna Wen, their previous president because she wasn't as concerned with abortion as they wanted her to be, as their board and their other leaders wanted them to be. So uh, what is your initial sense, just as this news is kind of emerging in in these recent days and weeks, um, what is your sense of what's going to happen in Los Angeles? Is this a test case for Planned Parenthood's future? Um, You know, when when they're in schools, it's a lot harder to to witness uh, if you're an average person, right? It's a lot harder to be there and to be present with people who need help. They sort of have a captive audience at that point. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And uh, to your point about Leanna Wen, it, it's so interesting and that, you know, she has made statements like, I think we should invest in prevention. And Planned Parenthood obviously has a big problem with that. And pro-choice advocates, they were all over her on Twitter for even tweeting that. And yet, you know, now the organization is promoting, oh, we're just promoting prevention. We're not doing any abortions. This is just about prevention. So, it, you know, it's about prevention when it suits them um, politically. But yeah, I mean, when you have this, abortion is an industry, as we know, as pro-lifers. And when you have the salespeople of abortion going into schools and teaching them about sex, like even as a secular person who does not hold uh, any biblical sexual moral values, I find that extremely problematic on so many levels. And, you know, I, I am, I believe that High schoolers should have access to sex education, uh, contraception, if they wish. Um, but I certainly do not support an abortion provider, uh, someone who has a financial interest in these future customers, um, having any kind of like real relationship with children. It's very, very concerning as a Californian. It's a bizarre thing. You know, we've, of course, uh, underscored in our work over many years at Americans United for Life the role of Planned Parenthood as America's deadliest nonprofit, you know, Planned Parenthood's core work, their core mission, um, as they've said since Dr. Leanna Wen's firing, is abortion. They've said this directly. Yes. And, you know, to Teresa's point, how comfortable would you as a parent feel if now your high schooler's computer science class is being outsourced to Facebook, right? And Facebook will be teaching your children how to use the internet. You know, all things run through Facebook. Everything will be through this lens, this Mark Zuckerberg lens, this lens that helps the company. That's what this is, right? So it's like instead of going, the school nurse was, is now going to work for Planned Parenthood. What, exactly. like, it's not like it's a mystery to us what that nurse will say. Planned Parenthood okay. is very honest about what they want. And we're just inviting them in. Yeah, it's really disturbing. But it's not surprising. I mean, with the way things have been going here in California, like the abortion industry is desperate, though, right now. I mean, they really, really are. So they are just pushing for the most extreme stuff and and just uh, allowing the legislators who they've supported their entire careers to just do their bidding now. And they, they pass, you know, abortion pill campus bills. So now every university in the state of California has to become a first trimester abortion provider. And now we've got Planned Parenthood in our high schools. I mean, this is this is a kind of extremism that really doesn't represent the majority of Californians. This is the abortion industry calling in some favors because they're scared. And this kind of stuff is not going to last. Yeah, I think it's important to keep watching this, especially as we look at uh, all the sort of witness to the right to life that we need to continue doing. Um, because this strategy, you know, we've talked about on Life, Liberty, and Law before, uh, the strategy of Planned Parenthood is opening these mega clinics in places like California or Illinois or other places, kind of preparing for a post-row scenario where there really aren't that many abortion clinics, but the ones that exist are sort of gargantuan mega centers. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you've got this new strategy of Planned Parenthood saying, we're actually going to put ourselves directly in schools, despite the fact that we're a partisan organization that campaigned with uh, a Democratic leader uh, that says we only want people elected from a particular political party, that says we're only concerned at the end of the day with abortion, that's our core mission, 
they still are able to insinuate themselves into schoolyards, into school classrooms, uh, into school medical facilities, as if they're a disinterested provider of medical care. In both of these situations, the mega center strategy and the school strategy are going to be key challenges for life-affirming Americans, first, to be aware of, uh, and second, to think about um, the ways in which uh, counter-witness and, and the sort of nonviolent direct action um, that has been so influential in social movements of the past can continue to play out in the future. We're going to shift gears here and talk about the Center for Medical Progress and your work, Teresa, in covering David DeLayden's uh, trial in San Francisco. Just when this was sort of getting started, I uh, joined you briefly outside of the uh, U.S. courthouse in San Francisco uh, during one of the preliminary uh, events there. And this is of course, ongoing. There are appeals now, uh, and there's more to come from this. But I'm wondering if you can kind of take us from step one. David Daleiden, of course, uh, and Lila Rose have been two key figures in the pro-life movement um, doing undercover work, uh, journalism work, reporting facts that others are not reporting for many years. Um, and David has been the subject of attacks of Planned Parenthood as a result of that through his organization, the Center for Medical Progress. What has happened and where are things going to go next? Back in 2015, uh, the Center for Medical Progress released a series of videos um, depicting high-level Planned Parenthood executives along with um, tissue procurement company executives haggling over the prices of baby body parts, describing um, abortion techniques that are illegal, including partial birth abortion techniques in order to obtain more high-value uh, fetal tissue um, and various other um, illegal activity. And just just really exposing the horrors of the abortion industry in their own words. And it turns out that, you know, in 2015, when these videos released, we found out that um, David Daleiden had gone undercover for years and really just put an incredible amount of foresight and talent and work into what I would consider the greatest pro-life work of our generation. The information that he was able to provide through that video footage led to two congressional um, investigations, um, led to, I think, 14 or 15 um, felony um, recommendations to the DOJ. Um, and the Department of Justice actually uh, did an investigation of Planned Parenthood, and the the results of that investigation are still pending. So we are still waiting for information from the DOJ. And a lot of people will say, oh, nothing ever came out of these videos. Oh, those videos were fake. Well, they weren't. The Fifth Circuit Court um, has confirmed that they are real. And then even in the hearings in San Francisco, the judge agreed upon facts in the case um, included that the videos are all real. Everything said by the people on the videos is authentic. And um, and a lot of people will say, well, Planned Parenthood was never found guilty of any of these charges. And therefore, you know, it was just like, you know, not valid or whatever. But the thing is, all of this is still pending. We're still waiting for the results from that investigation. So we don't have the answers yet. Now, in the meantime, Planned Parenthood and the National Abortion Federation both sued David in civil court. And the judge overseeing that case um, is a federal judge, Obama appointed, um, William Oreck the third. He is um, he has a serious conflict of interest. He served on the board of the Good Samaritan Family Resource Center in San Francisco, which opened a Planned Parenthood of the same affiliate that is suing David. It's still open today. And according to the bylaws of the organization, he still has legal ongoing duties to that organization and to Planned Parenthood. Incredible. It's unbelievable. Every motion we had to try to get him thrown off the case just went unanswered or, you know, he's been allowed to stay on the case. So the trial went forward. We went to a jury trial in that case. That jury heard six weeks of testimony from abortion doctors, from um, these tissue procurement executives, from David, from all of the people that worked at CMP. And after all of this testimony, the jury came back with a verdict that was devastating to us. $2.2 million awarded from the Center for Medical Progress to Planned Parenthood in damages that were completely unproved. Uh, Planned Parenthood made a, uh, did not make any kind of real case against any of the charges that they were held accountable, uh, that they held uh, CMP accountable to. In addition to that, not only did they turn back all the damages that Planned Parenthood asked them to, 
but they turned back punitive damages that were reserved specifically only for the most despicable and most heinous crimes. So it's just actu- actually unreal to me. I mean, um, it, it, it's, so- it's the type of outcome, Teresa, that seems that would indicate they're trying to make an example of him, right? It would seem that way. And it, it just truly is shocking, though, considering the testimony that was heard. Um, and I know that my own bias gets in the way, but it, it's just I'm shocked, quite frankly. Um, but now, now that that's uh, go- over for now, we there will be appeal. We will win. There's not going to be a dime that goes from the pro-life uh, a pro-life organization to an abortion provider. That is not going to happen. We will win. Um, but it is, it's pretty demoralizing as a San Franciscan to see a jury go in that direction. It's a David and Goliath situation, and we know who the David is in this situation. David uh, is, you know, has been, to my mind, uh, acting uh, consistently in the persona of a journalist. He's been doing the sort of things journalists do. And so, yeah. you know, if I'm asked to sit on a, a jury... Um, to figure out what's going on here. That would be my kind of instinctive reaction. But what freaks me out is just the way that the final chapter is kind of being written on his actual videos, his actual investigation, is when it first came out, it was a bombshell, right? And then they were all coming out and we're all learning so much. And it's kind of ended now to where if you bring it up in most just sort of mainstream settings, the response will be, well, those were debunked. You know, those aren't even a point. Those are debunked. And there was no legwork done in the debunking part. We just went straight from bombshell to those are debunked. And there was like no middle point by sort of the just both mainstream media and just average people. It's already had, you know, a major uh, social impact. But I think that it's the biggest impact of the videos is really yet to come. It really is about getting over. Um, and away from that, oh, those videos were fake rhetoric, which like even in their press release um, that they released after the um, the civil ruling just a few weeks ago um, said something about the videos being fake, even though they agreed upon the fact in the case itself that the videos were in fact real. So they're still very much using this talking point because it is their only hope right now and those days will run out so what can we look forward to over the course of 2020 to the extent that we do know at least how things are going to happen procedurally Uh, what's next for david and the center for medical progress uh david and sandra's arraignment will be on january 30th and then we'll we'll know there but um yeah, we are expecting this to go to the jury trial, and uh, we, we really don't know who's going to be testifying going forward. Many of the yeah. Joes already testified in the preliminary hearing, so it, it's, it's really going to be up to, the, up to the judge. And where can people continue to follow your work and, and the reporting on this case generally? Um, so definitely, please, if you're not already, follow the Center for Medical Progress and follow Pro-Life San Francisco. Uh, we've been... Uh, reporting mostly through um, live actions blog um, and publishing it um, through our channels as well. Um, So make sure to follow all three of those organizations. All right, Teresa. Well, thanks so much for walking us through the particulars of that case. We're going to continue to follow it. It's incredibly important for uh, not just uh, David in particular, but for Americans broadly who care about truly our constitutional rights uh, and responsibilities. Um, let's shift gears now and talk a little bit about your own story, Teresa. We've talked about your work in founding Pro-Life San Francisco, your background with secular pro-life, your your beliefs, your affiliations. But have you always lived in San Francisco? Have you always lived in California? I haven't, actually. I, I grew up in Michigan. Um, my family goes back there generations. Um, I lived in Atlanta for seven years before moving here to San Francisco about 13 years ago. Um, so I, I do have some experience in, in some other parts of the, the country, you know, obviously growing up in a, in a, you know, pretty much a swing state and then going to a very, uh, red state, but in a super blue city. And then, um, out here to San Francisco is, has given me some political perspective. Um, and, you know, I was raised, um, religious, uh, and, um, I, was pretty involved in my church in um, Atlanta. It was an ELCA church, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Uh, But I was pretty pro-choice. 
Um, the, the Lutheran church doesn't really take a strong stance against abortion and it's not something that we talked about in terms of faith, but, um, but I got exposed to the, the pro-life position during those years, um, because I was dating someone who was, um, very right leaning politically, but agnostic. Um, and he was very pro-life and he would challenge some of my opinions about animal rights and say, how can you care about the dolphins, if you don't care about unborn children being killed in the womb, and I'm like, what unborn children? It's just a clump of cells. Mm. Uh, but he really went out of his way to kind of humanize um, the unborn for me, and he showed me videos and images of children in utero, of abortion procedures. I was, like, completely shocked. Um, but I still stayed pretty pro-choice because I was like, well, you know, there's all these other horrible things happening in the world. And they're not nearly as morally complicated as pregnancy. And I'm not doing anything about those things. I'm just praying about it. And babies go to heaven when they die. So I'm just going to, you know, stay pro-choice. But for me personally, I know I wouldn't have an abortion now because that is just, I, I saw the videos. It's too bad. Um, but then when I, over the years, I kind of lost my faith. I, I mean, I did try to keep it. And I continued to go to church and continued to pray. But I just found myself over time realizing that I I was just going through the motions. But once I really realized that and kind of accepted that reality for myself, I started to see my life in a different way. And I thought, you know, I I no longer saw uh, thought of myself as having an afterlife in any kind of meaningful way. So I, I thought, wow, I, I'm not I'm not here because God has a purpose for my life. I'm here because nobody interrupted my life cycle and killed me. Mm. And I, all of a sudden I saw my life as like this, just this amazing cognitive experience that I was just so lucky to have the opportunity to have that, you know, billions of years of evolution have happened and I've just popped into existence. Like, and I kept thinking about like what makes, because when you're a new atheist, you don't, you're like, your whole worldview is like shattered. You're like, what is right and wrong? How do I know what's good and bad? And is that even a thing? And so I'm like, what makes killing people wrong? I know why I think it's wrong for myself, but what makes it wrong for everyone else? And yeah. why is killing unborn children different than that? And I just kept coming to the conclusion that it isn't different, that you need the exact same justifications to kill a younger person as you do an older person. And that, you know, yes, pregnancy does complicate it morally, but there are ways of addressing that consistently across the population without employing some type of ableism. And I just was having these thoughts, but I, you know, living in San Francisco, being a liberal and, and finding myself an atheist and now all of a sudden pro-life, I'm like, I better keep that a secret. So I didn't say anything to anybody about it really until years later when I saw someone posting on the page Secular Pro-Life. And that's when I realized there were 12 million non-religious pro-lifers at least in the United States alone. And I felt community and I felt like, okay, this isn't something I have to hide. There are other people like me. And that's why I've spent so much of my advocacy being so visible as an atheist and a Democrat. People are always like, why do you have to say that? Like, why does it matter? It matters <laughs> because we need people to see people like me so that we can win. You know, I know a lot of people who are, you know, they might be passionate anti-war advocates and they can really wax eloquently about how bad violence is internationally people who are animal rights activists, like you said, about they can talk about the value of saving endangered species and, you know, how we need to facilitate the, the, the breeding of more pandas so that don't go extinct. You know, envi environmental ad advocates who talk about the degradation of our natural environment. But then they either couldn't care less about abortion or they think it's like a really good thing because maybe sort of having more humans just makes violence worse and having more humans makes animals worse and the world worse. How do we sort of deal with this sort of new wave of not just pro-choice, but almost anti-human aspect of some of these advocates? Yeah, I think that's a really good question because you do see that kind of increasingly. Um, but the problem I, I see is just that it's not consistent. People will claim that, but you know that that's not true, like in their real lives. And that's easy to point out to them um, for the most part. Like, I, I really think that if you're willing to go like that so hardcore, like against people, like you're not looking at the situ situation in a realistic way. But but I really think the overarching issue is the political issue because people's ideology do not direct their politics. We know that um, from several studies that have been done on this topic, that people's ideology is formed by their politics, 
not the other way around. So if they don't see anyone like them politically holding this position, then they're going to have to try to find ways of justifying the position that they hold. And that's what we're seeing. And I think that the extreme um, lengths that people will go through to try to justify this position is evidence, first of all, that, you know, this is not really consistent with their other points of view that we will win eventually and, and evidence of what we already know, which is that statistically speaking, when they're asked about these types of issues in polling, they're very conflicted about abortion. They just don't know how to talk about it in a way that makes political or cultural sense to them because they don't see people like them doing it. And that's why it's so, so important to magnify the voices in our pro-life community that can more mirror um, these types of values, because if they don't see other animal rights activists doing it, then they think we don't care about animals and therefore they can't align with us. Or if they don't see other pro-lifers aligning with, you know, the environmental issues, again, same thing. They're just going to go the other way. So people aren't going to form individual ideologies in the way we hope that they would. That's just not going to happen. Yeah, they the role of groupthink comes into place there, right? You see that, you know, we've talked about even Joe Biden, you know, his sort of uh, potentially unique role uh, as a Democratic contender for the presidency, somebody who has made a, a whole public life, a whole career in the Senate, uh, and then as vice president, as a supporter of common sense regulation like the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits federal funding for uh, unnecessary non-medically indicated abortions. Um, and then... You know, he has the potential to continue that that role, that witness to human life um, as a presidential candidate now. But the moment that he faces even a modicum of heat about it from the extremists on the life issue, uh, the anti-life issue, he caves because he says, well, this is going to be a threat to um, what is what is his highest good, which would be the Oval Office. Um, And you say, well, if even somebody of the power uh, of a Joe Biden, somebody who has the political capital to spend to continue to hold fast to something that is clearly has been a principle of his until recently over his entire life. If even he feels the intense pressure uh, to change and to conform to uh, that that uh, ideology of of anti life, anti humanist perspective, then of course the rest of us are going to face the same thing in our own lives, in our own communities, amongst our friends, etc. It's going to be there that intense pressure to conform uh, to whatever the viewpoint is, even if it's as Something as basic as saying, well, I guess if I'm concerned about animal welfare, then I, I have to also be pro-choice. Um, but just as you say, hearing even one person say, well, actually, that's not the case, uh, can be an invitation to uh, a more common sense and moderate position. Um, Teresa, Yes, what- and uh, just to add to that, like the, one of the reasons that Joe Biden caved is I wouldn't even say intense pressure. It's just because he got some pressure. And where is the pressure from the other side? Like the only pressure we see on this issue is coming from Republicans. Well, that's insignificant to someone like Joe Biden, who's trying to get votes from Democrats. And it doesn't matter if these grassroots activists that are pressuring him to abandon support for Hyde, um, if they represent a majority, because they don't. It's just the fact that they're there doing something. And if pro-life Democrats don't step up and do it back, then we're going to continue to fail. And maybe all it would have taken was you know, one trip to his office with a group of pro-life Democrats. We never know how much activism it will take until we try. And I think the problem is just that we don't have anyone on our side doing that kind of pressure. So, Teresa, what is your favorite thing about living in San Francisco, aside from your work with Pro-Life San Francisco? <laughs> um, well, my favorite thing is just the, the culture here. I love the freedom to just be who I want to be and to to be a provocative person and to be loud and to grab a (laughs) megaphone and that's like, and people listen and to, to find a way as a pro-life person to, to fit in, in this community. It's a challenge and it's fun. And I feel like these are my people, even though, you know, we disagree on abortion there. I agree with so much more um, with San Franciscans than I do the rest of the country. So it, it does feel like the place where I'm meant to be. And I have two amazing cats that are, make my life very fulfilling, <laughs> a wonderful apartment. What are your cats' names? Avicii and Whitney. Great names. <laughs> Thank you. They're the lights of my life. And I, I feel, 
you know, obviously this kind of work isn't the kind of thing that you just love to do because it sucks that we even really have to deal with the fact that, you know, babies are being killed in this country. Um, but I am grateful that I'm able to, to live and do the type of work that is important to me. And yeah, I, I feel very, very lucky to, to live in a place like San Francisco and do this kind of work. Well, we're grateful for you and for your continuing advocacy, uh, your coverage of, of uh, the Center for Medical Progress, David DeLayden's work, your own work through ProLife San Francisco, and uh, the work in general of, of helping raise up uh, another generation um, of pro-life Americans uh, who are coming from all ages, all backgrounds, all beliefs, um, but coming to a point of, of commonality when it comes to the human right to life. It's a powerful thing, and it is going to change America. Teresa, something that you may know that we do every show is our shot of gratitude. We, we share something that we are grateful for. So I'm going to have Noah go first, um, but then you're going to be up next. You ready? Okay. You know, Tom, as we're in this holiday season here in December, I'm thankful that I get to buy gifts for people. I really, really love sort of thinking about what people I love in my life what they like to do and what I could get them that would help them or bring them a a few sparks of joy. And I definitely like giving gifts more than I like receiving them. And so sort of this couple weeks leading up to the gift giving time, leading up to Christmas uh, in my household is a really fun time of getting to sort of buy gifts and wrap them and think about people opening them and putting them under my tree. That's awesome. Teresa, how about you? Uh, well, I just received news that I am now an aunt for the first time. Wow. That's Congratulations. Awesome. Thank you. My sister is pregnant um, still early on, but I'm just, I am so, so thankful for the opportunity to be an aunt and um, just to bond with my family in this way. And I'm going to go home um, for Christmas uh, just for a couple days so I don't have to be away from my cats for long. But I'm just, <laughs> I'm so thankful that I, I have flexibility in my schedule to be able to do that and to be able to just bond with my immediate family in this whole new and exciting way. That's awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. Congratulations, Teresa. Tom, what is something you're grateful for? You know, Noah, I am grateful for, for family. You know, it's, uh, the holidays can be a tough time of year. I think, um, you know, we can, look back and we can be sorry for our loved ones and our friends who aren't here anymore. Uh, I know, you know, we, we all experience that in different ways. Um, and I think it's a, it's a powerful time of year to, to remember them, to honor them, uh, to pray for them, to love them while doing all those things with those uh, who are still here and who are still in our lives. And so I'm looking forward to um, being home as well, um, which for me means going back up to uh, Philadelphia and uh, spending some time there to see family and loved ones. Awesome. That's great, Tom. That's terrific. That's real gratitude, being able to have gratitude for the time time you spent with your loved ones who aren't there and gratitude for the time you get to spend with your loved ones you're with. All right. Well, Teresa, thank you so much for joining us on Life, Liberty, and Law and sharing your story. Thank you, guys. Always a pleasure. Can't wait to see you at the march. All right. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Rate the show, leave a review, and share the show with a friend. That's how we spread the message on conversations on the human right to life. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, drop us an email at life at AUL.org. And be sure to follow Teresa Bukovinak, Pro-Life San Francisco, and the Center for Medical Progress. I'm Tom Shakely, and until next time, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.